Good morning. Good morning. It's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. You'll notice in our bulletins that the topic for the sermon today is suffering. Again, happy Mother's Day to all of you. If, uh, if some of you dads out there are starting to feel some FOMO, don't worry, I'm sure on Father's Day we will pick another popular topic like the wrath of God. So, so just wait for your turn, okay? But it's not only Mother's Day, it's also the Sunday after the Ascension. The Ascension is on the 40th day after Easter, the Gospels tell us. That always comes on a Thursday, so we always celebrate the Ascension on the Sunday after. The, the Ascension is when Jesus ascended into heaven, and he ascended into heaven carrying our humanity in himself into the glory and the presence of God, and he made a way for us to one day follow him there. He's led that way, and we're going to talk a little bit about the glory of God and glorification in today's sermon, but the topic really is suffering. So why are we going to talk about suffering? We've been working through 1 Peter, and it seems like most of the sermons that we've had have kind of had this topic of suffering sprinkled into them throughout. So why does Peter bring it up again? Because that's why we're talking about it. He brought it up again. Why does he bring it up again? What's he got to say that's new about it? And he actually kind of gives us an answer in verse 12. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. So he's writing this so that we won't be surprised by it. By the way, this word surprised, it's not like it's your birthday and all your friends got together and they threw you a party and surprise! It's not like a good surprise. This word really means more like shocked. I work, uh, I'm, I'm a registered nurse. I work in an emergency room in a level one trauma center there are a lot of really bad surprises in a level one trauma center. And something that happens more over the summer than any other time is that a few times a car will just pull up outside the emergency department and a victim of violence, often a victim of gun violence, will be pushed out of the car, propped up against the doors, the car will speed off. When that happens at an ER, all the staff rush out, they grab this patient, they pull him in on a cart, and it's, and it's just kind of like utter chaos because nobody knew this patient was coming. It's a bad surprise. And people are shouting all over the place. We don't know what his injuries are. We don't know if he's bleeding out from somewhere. We don't know if he's breathing yet. There's no trauma surgeon, so people are yelling, call the trauma surgeon. People are asking, do we have the respiratory card? Do we have an IV? Do we have IV access? Is the CT ready to scan this patient? None of the supplies are pulled out of the drawer. Some of them are in storage. We have to wheel big machines up to take care of this patient. And it's kind of mass chaos. That's a bad surprise when a patient shows up like that. Let me tell you, let me contrast that with what usually happens, because that's the exception. What usually happens is we get a phone call or a radio call from an ambulance. And the ambulance says, hey, we've got a patient. These are his injuries. We're about seven minutes away. And in that seven minutes, we can call the trauma surgeons so that they make it all the way from wherever they are in the hospital, and they're waiting in the ER minutes before the patient arrives. In that time, we can pull all the supplies out of the drawers. We can wheel the big machines up ready, and we can have all the staff assembled. So when that patient arrives, we just converge in a kind of ordered process, and we begin to care for and stabilize the patient. And it makes all the difference to get that radio call that says, don't be surprised, trouble is coming. 
And in this passage, Peter is making that radio call to his original audience and to us. And he says, don't be surprised. Don't be shaken. Suffering is coming. But there is a way to pass through it. There's a way to endure it. There's even a way to endure suffering so that it's life-giving. Peter wants them to be prepared for it. But if you're not prepared for it, suffering could shake you all the way to your core. If you're not prepared for suffering, who knows what could happen? But if you heed the words of Scripture here, you will be prepared when suffering rolls in. And this morning, I want to explore the main idea of this passage of Scripture broken up into four points. Suffer with Christ, not without Christ. It's worth it. Suffer with Christ, not without Christ. It's worth it. So the first part is suffer. This is not a command. It's more of a promise. Okay? Suffering is coming. Look at verse 12 again. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is not a surprise for Christians because we know that we have to follow Christ. And Christ leads us to the cross. He also leads us on Easter out of the grave. And on the day of the ascension, he leads us into glorification in the presence of the Father. But if we're going to follow Jesus into glory, then we have to follow him by way of the cross. And at times, we're even going to walk the path of suffering because we're choosing to follow Christ when the world would actually offer us a much simpler path. So we suffer because Christ suffered. And that's the plainest answer for Christians. That's why we shouldn't be surprised by the fiery trial. But Christians aren't the only ones who suffer in this world, are we? All of humanity suffers since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Ever since Adam broke the world a little bit, and we have all followed him, breaking and disordering the world. And all of that adds up to a really broken world. And it's a world that actually has death in it. Death, which is the judgment upon Adam and all the children of Adam. And suffering itself is like a kind of death that arrives during our lifetime. Suffering tries to beat us down. It tries to beat us into the grave. And it would, apart from Christ. Verse 17 of our passage actually makes a connection between suffering and judgment. It promises that, ju that suffering is coming by saying, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, for us who believe in Christ, we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But judgment, when Scripture talks about judgment, it talks about God looking at what is righteous and calling it righteous, looking at what is evil and calling it evil, and separating the two. So that righteousness and evil are no longer mixed up and confused. God calls it righteous and evil and separates it. 
And Peter says that when we feel the judgment of God, when we feel the suffering in our lives, don't be surprised by it as if something strange were happening. Now, suffering is not just an abstraction, is it? It's not just a concept. Suffering actually meets us in our bodies. It meets us in the bodies of those we love. It looks like cancer. It looks like needles and pain. Suffering can actually be happening in our desires because we want things that we don't want to want. Suffering wrenches control out of our hands because when you're suffering, you want it to stop and you can't make it stop. If you could make it stop, you would never suffer. Wrenches control out of your hands. Suffering can come as a threat, a constant threat. That you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your friends or family, you're going to lose your safety. And whenever suffering comes, however it comes, it's not a concept anymore. It's palpable. And I don't give all these examples in order to make us frightened or anything. I give them so that when these things happen, when the suffering that is promised comes, we will remember, oh, this is the thing that Jesus has prepared me for. This is what Jesus was preparing me for. Some of you here might be experiencing suffering today. Jesus has prepared you for this. He is preparing you for this. And you can walk through it. So in this passage, Peter is telling us, don't be surprised, you will suffer. So suffer, part two, with Christ. Look with me at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Notice that it doesn't say that we are sharing our sufferings with Christ. Look what it actually says. It says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Something mysterious is happening here. This word share, when he says you share Christ's sufferings, is the same word that Paul actually uses when he says that the bread and the cup that we take in the Lord's Supper is a sharing or a fellowship or a partaking. It's the same word, a partaking in the body and blood of Christ. What he's saying is that when you suffer righteously, in this case, you are actually sharing, participating in, fellowshipping in, the suffering of Christ on the cross. It's a sacramental reality, not sacrament big S, sacrament little s. And so, we, so we're not confused about what a sacrament is. Sacrament is a visible and outward sign of an invisible spiritual reality. The, the early church has always explained it as, it's like when the wind moves, you can't see the wind, but you can see the movement of the leaves. Something is really happening that is invisible. And the outward thing that we can see and experience is the assurance that we know that this is happening. In this case, the suffering that we experience in our bodies is the assurance that we know we are joined to Christ's suffering on the cross. It is a sacramental reality. It is something we live out in our bodies that brings us to sanctification. We become joined to Christ in suffering. 
What's Christ's becomes ours? That's why in verse 14 it says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you because that's the spirit of God that rested upon Christ in his baptism. The same thing gets said of us here. That's why in verse 16 it talks about us bearing the name Christian. Because what's Christ becomes ours. We become identified with him. We join him in our suffering. And actually joining Christ, receiving this grace, is where we actually receive the power to suffer righteously, to suffer well the way that Christ did. That's another thing that it means to suffer with Christ. It means that we suffer like Christ with regard to sin, and that is innocently. Because Christ died, and we know that death is the judgment for sin. But Christ didn't sin. So whose judgment did he experience? experienced the judgment of Adam and all of Adam's children. That's us, not his own judgment. He died for us. He suffered without sin. And Christ then calls us to suffer like him without sin. And the way we do this is that when we suffer, we respond to our suffering without sinning. In the midst of our suffering, we will feel the urge to strike out, or to indulge in something that takes the pain away, or to grow bitter so that we will never forgive. And Christ calls us to something else. To suffer with Christ means to suffer with forgiveness, to suffer with grace and love, to suffer without responding in sin. And we can't do that on our own. This is not, this is not something we can muster up. When we're suffering, we can't respond with grace. We want to be angry and bitter. We want to soothe the pain that we feel from the suffering, even for just a little while, with something that we know will feel like, like it just takes the pain away for a second. Sometimes that's just letting out our rage. Sometimes that's indulging in sexual impurity. Sometimes that's using substances. But if we would just pray, Jesus, I want to join this suffering to your suffering. Give me the power to suffer with Christ. God will answer that prayer. That is a prayer that God wants you to pray because he wants to answer that prayer. He wants to join you with Christ. And your suffering will still be hard. But you will be with Christ. A Christian never has to suffer alone. A Christian can always suffer with Christ. And when we suffer with Christ, this actually changes the effect that suffering has on us. Apart from Christ, suffering just deals death blow after death blow. But to a person who's joined with the resurrected Son of God, it has a different effect in verse 12, Peter actually uses the word, a word that means fiery trial there. And he uses that to show us what suffering is to a Christian. It's different from a death blow. The word fiery trial here actually refers to the way that gold was purified. In the ancient world, the way you purified gold is that you would have this piece of gold ore. So it's, so it's attached to a lot of minerals and what you do is you mix it with clay and salt, and then you heat all that up in an extremely hot fire. Um, it's this 
Very hot for that day, especially. And all the impurities, most of them will actually burn out of that ore. But even then, you're still going to have some silver in every gold ore that's attached to the gold. And you've got to get rid of the silver too. And the silver, at that temperature, will react with the clay and with the soft. And it'll sublimate off as a gas. And then once the fire has passed, once it cools down, all you have left is pure gold. And this is the effect of suffering when we are joined to Christ. Rather than being burned up and consumed by it, suffering only removes the things that we can't keep. You, joined with Christ, pass through the fiery judgment for Adam and his children, but now you are a child of God. And instead of being destroyed, you're made better. You're made pure. Suffering with Christ joins us sacramentally, that's in our bodies, to Christ's sufferings spiritually. Suffering with Christ means suffering without sin. Suffering with Christ transforms suffering into a purifying fire rather than a death blow. So suffer with Christ, not without Christ. Look with me at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If you're not quite sure what a meddler is, it's like a busybody. So okay, self-evaluation time. You ready? We've got this list. Not a murderer. Check. Not a thief. Check. Not an evildoer. Check. Not a meddler. Sure. Check. So what, what's actually going on? In this verse, what is he saying? Well, he's saying that while suffering with Christ is life-giving, suffering without Christ is dangerous. There's a couple of ways that we sometimes suffer without Christ. And the most obvious thing from this verse where he, where he lists these ways that you're not supposed to suffer, the most obvious thing that he's saying is it's really different to suffer for doing something bad as opposed to suffering for doing something good, right? Let's dive a little bit deeper into this verse. Let's, let's think about it within the context of how 1 Peter was written. We think that, to the best of our knowledge, 1 Peter was written to Christians who were experiencing these really big social pressures to incorporate aspects of pagan worship back into their lives. So for most of the world around them, it was probably fine if they kept worshiping Jesus in some way, but they really would like it if these Christians would go back and at least sacrifice in the temple some. You know, that's just the Roman thing to do. If these Christians would, would sacrifice to idols, maybe participate in some of the mystery cults. And for some Christians in this audience, they'd actually been able to live their lives up until this point without coming into direct conflict with this. They had been able to stay true to their faith. They'd not returned to the temple, but they'd never had the issue forced on them. Just their lives had never turned out that way. And Peter is saying, don't be surprised if that changes. Let me give you a scenario. Like, imagine we're going back to the, four, to the first century. And uh, 
Some of these Christians, they, they get all their meat from a particular butcher down in the marketplace. Maybe he has the best lamb chops. He's, got, he's the kind of guy, you know, he's got the meat hanging from his rack. And they go to this guy and he's real laid back and he's chill. And he just doesn't really care if they're Christians or not. He's a nice guy. So he's never pushed the issue. But imagine something happens. That guy moves away. Or maybe the emperor forces them to relocate because they're Christians. They, they, have, they can't live there anymore. The new butcher that they have to go buy meat from well, he only does business with good, respectable Roman citizens who worship the gods. And suddenly, these people are just one conversation away from being barred from the market. And what Peter is saying to them in that moment is, don't let that guy have anything to say about you other than that person's a Christian. Don't cheat that guy. Don't even gossip with that guy. Let him have no charge against you other than being a Christian. Only suffer for that. I don't know all the neighborhoods you guys live in or all the places you guys work, but I know that in the neighborhood that I live in, there are some things about the gospel that are offensive in my neighborhood. There are some things about the gospel that are just offensive to the world, some things about the gospel that might be offensive in my place of work as well. And we can actually um, just get so wrapped up and comfortable in today's culture and in the ways of thinking in the world around us that we become so much like the world that a fiery persecution actually would be a huge surprise if it actually came, because we, we just were kind of undercover Christians. No one would ever know to persecute us, right? And I actually know that that makes sense, because a lot of us here are turned off by a bunch of the culture wars that we see happening around us. And, and we even look at some Christians and we think, man, they're not following what I read in First Peter about holiness. And they're not following what I read in First Peter about suffering righteously. We have to be so wise and so careful that our desire to love our neighbor, truly love our neighbor, does not actually get mixed up and confused with the desire to be approved of by our culture at all costs. The desire to be uh, thought cool, thought progressive at all costs. Because we can love our neighbor, we can always love our neighbor and hold fast to the gospel, there's no conflict there. There will never be a conflict between loving your neighbor, holding fast to the gospel. But we cannot always be approved of by the culture and hold fast to the gospel. There are things about the gospel that will be offensive. And sometimes I just feel one conversation away from no longer being welcome in the lives of some people that I know and love and in some places of business. When that happens... Let none of us actually suffer for being a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. Let none of us suffer for being a complainer, someone who starts fights, someone who's hateful, someone who's a drunkard. To do those things and suffer the consequences of them is a dangerous reality, to suffer without Christ. If anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed. 
What else keeps our suffering from being with Christ? Well, we talked about, when, it said, when we talked about suffering with Christ, we talked about uh, uh, when we find ourselves in a place of suffering and we want to respond to our situation with rage or indulgence or bitterness, and when we do that, we actually move ourselves away from suffering with Christ, who suffered on the cross by showing forgiveness to those who were tormenting him. Remember, Christ said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When we respond to suffering with anger and rage, by demanding that we be treated better, we look so unlike Jesus on the cross. Now, I want to push pause here for a second and actually say that um, when you're suffering, experiencing sorrow and experiencing grief is not sinful. That's different from bitterness and rage. The prophet Isaiah actually describes Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And it's not wrong to ask God to take your suffering away from you. To grieve and to ask for relief from God is actually a healthy way to suffer with Christ. Christ only adds that he wants you to suffer and grieve with hope, okay? But it's not wrong to grieve. And likewise, some people suffer, maybe some of you suffer um, under the threat of violence, where you live, or in an abusive relationship. And it's important for you to know that, that responding in grace and forgiveness doesn't mean that you remain in an unsafe place. Responding in grace and forgiveness doesn't mean that you're saying, oh, that's right, whatever you're doing, I forgive you, so it must be right. No, Christ forgave, but he still calls sin, sin. So just know that, that that's, not, that's not what's required by grace and forgiveness. You don't have to remain in an unsafe place. Those are special circumstances. I wanted to give that caveat as we think about what it means to suffer with Christ. If that doesn't describe you, then give thanks to God. Maybe your suffering is less complex than that. Don't suffer without Christ. If you do, you're opening yourself up to the death blows. So suffer with Christ, not without Christ. It's worth it. Let's look again at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter says, don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That is, rejoice insofar as you come to intimately know Christ through suffering. Rejoice insofar as you are sacramentally joined to the sufferings of Christ through your own suffering. Rejoice insofar as suffering itself has lost its power over you. So that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What does this mean? It means that being joined sacramentally with Christ in our suffering now prepares us for the joy of the bodily return of Christ and the bodily resurrection of the dead. One of the beautiful things about our sacramental tradition 
which is the tradition of the early church, is that we have come to value the physical things, the physical, the physical creation around us, this life, our bodies, because we believe that God actually has broken into time, broken into history, and that he meets us here and now, in this space, in our bodies. But we must never think that looking forward to the return of Christ is somehow a distraction from the much better things that we work at now. We must never think that looking forward to the return of Christ is a distraction. Far from it. Far from it. Our whole foundation for good works now, for worship now, for building the kingdom of God among us in our communities around us, the whole foundation for doing that now is that we have a sure and certain hope that Christ will return, that the dead will be raised. And if that weren't so, this stuff that we do would all be meaningless. And nowhere do we rely on that hope of Christ returning more certainly, more desperately than in the midst of our suffering. How else do we confront the reality of suffering, the reality of the crucifixion, if there is not a resurrection still ahead of us? A few years back, a friend of mine was in the midst of a season of suffering. And they were really, really not accepting uh, the scriptural promise that suffering would come. And this friend said, I know, I know heaven is real. They put it in quotes because it felt trite to them. No heaven is real. But I think that this life, this life really matters. And this life does matter because it's leading somewhere. We must hold fast to that original hope that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Because on that day when the dead are raised, when Jesus reigns as the loving ruler over all creation, and when all the living and the dead stand before him and we see him look over all of history, begin to point at the things that we remember, that we know we experienced. He looks over all of history and he begins to say, that was righteous, that was evil. No one there is going to say, when he finishes all that up, when he puts all that to order, no one there is going to say, that wasn't fair. I just don't think that cut it. That wasn't worth it. Everyone there will stand in amazement as we see him put what was incomprehensible to us in place and in order. And we will all say, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Righteous and true are your judgments. This is our hope. Verse 19 ensures us that we can entrust ourselves to God because he is a faithful creator. We can put our hope in him. We prepare ourselves to rejoice in Christ's glorious coming again by rejoicing now as we join him 
our suffering. So are you sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Do you know that you will suffer? Or will you be surprised? Peter right now is saying, suffering is coming. We're seven minutes out. Get ready. Trouble's rolling in. Don't be surprised. Are you joining your sufferings to the sufferings of Christ on the cross? He suffered for you. He knows that we can't suffer in life-giving ways on our own. We need his help. And if you are suffering and you feel that natural pull towards anger, towards indulgence, towards bitterness, then you really need Christ's power to suffer without sin. And you can ask God for this. Just pray. Just say, Jesus, join my suffering to your own. Help me to suffer as you did without sin. And the spirit of glory and of God will rest on you. And as you suffer with Christ, fix your eyes on the hope of Christ's return. Hold fast to his promise that you will rejoice in that day. He is our faithful creator. Suffer with Christ, not without Christ. It's worth it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.